1 Samuel chapter 20, last week we began looking at the friendship between uh, David and Jonathan, and this is not so much a continuance of looking at their friendship, but trying to apply their friendship this morning in regards to our own relationships and covenantal relationships together. And so we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, if, you, if you would, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 20, I'm going to read through verse 17, and then we drop down to verse 41 and read the rest of the chapter from there. Hear God's word. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. For, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward you, David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do your harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. For when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then dropping down to verse 41 to end our passage. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible words. May the grass wilder and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. Well, uh, Marla Paul, who is a uh, fairly, was at one time a fairly well-known writer uh, for the Chicago Tribune, um, wrote an article in which she was asking help in regards to making friends. And she said this in the midst of that article. She said this, I am lonely. The loneliness is familiar and it saddens me. How did, the, it, how did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have 
friends. She asked her husband if, if there was something wrong with her in the midst, she said in the article, and she said she wondered if people were just too busy for friends, or, or maybe people her age are just, you know, they have their sort, quick group of people around them, and so they don't have room for other friends. She said she um, recently was reading her daughter the book um, from Hans Christian Andersen, The Ugly Duckling, and she said this, I felt an immediate kinship with this bird who flies from place to place looking for the creatures with whom he belongs. He eventually finds them, and I hope I do too, is what she says. She said of all the articles she had ever written, she received seven times more response than any other column she had ever written. Women would come up to her at her children's soccer games or athletic events and in the grocery store, and they would say, you too? I feel exactly the same way, same way. And all the letters, she said, had the same theme. They would ask this question within the letter. Why am I so lonely? And why is it so hard for me to make good friends? Well, if it is a problem for women to make good friends, then it's most definitely a problem for men to make good friends. This is an issue that is plaguing our culture and our society, a lack of actual deep friendships. And remember, we're talking about covenant relationships, like the relationship you make with your church or the, with a spouse or with a few very close same-sex friendships. Men and women are struggling. In fact, did you know this? This is just a, a, an illustration of how much we are struggling and longing for even some sort of intimacy is that there is a profession that is rather odd that is on the rise. It's the profession of professional snuggling. Professional snuggling. Around the country, there are those who are putting themselves out there and being hired for $80 an hour in which they will snuggle with people who have desperate need for physical contact. For example, one particular snuggler is a girl named Samantha Varnanen, and she is a professional snuggler, and she said this this way, though, about why people long for her services. She said best, the most all-encompassing way to describe her typical client is this way, in one word, lonely, lonely. She said this, people are going to have all problems that are not necessarily solvable through cuddling, But you're not expected to solve them, she said. You're supposed to simply be there for them, kind of like a friend. The thing that they don't have, and you know what? The group that is most likely to hire a professional snuggler are men in their mid-20s. The ones who you think would find it to be the most awkward and ridiculous, and what they're longing for is non-sexual touch that's actually intimate and that is friendly. And what we have in our culture and our society, despite more and more moving to the suburbs and to the cities, is that we are a lonely people in a sea of relationships. We are lonely in the midst of our marriages, a household of strangers. You remember that it's one of the most jarring scenes ever from an SNL skit. Remember the one where they sit there and they just scrape the plates in silence with each other at dinner Stranger sitting at the dinner table. We are lonely, in fact, also in our churches. Churches have become cold and creepy places where relational engagement is never extended beyond the superficial. 
in which we know we ought to have something more than this, but we all run around with awkward tentacles stretching out from us. We are lonely in the midst of all of our so-called friends and workplace associates, where we're busy with all of our activities and our social clubs and our teams and our projects, but in the midst of it, there is social awkwardness because we are living parallel lives in which we know there is a wall of vulnerability that would be socially unacceptable for us to go past. We have tons of relationships, but not many deep friendships. And what we looked at last week and what we are going to apply a little bit today is the relationship of David and Jonathan. And remember what we're looking at is we're not looking at mere acquaintances. We're not looking at companions. Your dog can be a good companion. What we're looking at is covenantal friendships, deep and abiding covenantal friendships. And just so as a a means of review, because some of you may be bothered a little bit by this, I'm hardly going to go back to our text this morning. I'm relying on last week to have done our expositional and exegetical work. And so this morning is a continuance of last week's sermon, not a separate sermon, but a continuance of application. So therefore, we need to review. If you remember, covenantal relationships have a beginning and a foundation in a intention and a significant commonality. There are people who have find a similar purpose in life in which they look at each other and they say, you too, you long for that as well. That is the great passion of your life, me as well. The second thing we see about covenantal relationships is there is an intentional commitment. We see the, day, the relationship between David and Jonathan was covenantal. There was a vow, there was a promise You make vows when you enter into marriage. What we're talking about here is particularly applicable to our marriages. But I also pushed you and wanted you to see that there's vows that we ought to make with our churches and, yes, indeed, with deep friendships. That there ought to be those with whom we make covenants with. We make deep promises with. The scriptures, I'm not sure necessarily command it, but I think they did do, we can deduce it from the scriptures that these are the kind of relationships that we ought to have. Covenantal relationships where you promise fidelity to one another and care for one another and you specify what that is. And then from that, because of the security that comes from such a covenant relationship is there is deep vulnerability that can happen. You are willing to be exposed. We see Jonathan and David are emotional men around each other. They are not weak men. They're the type of men who slaughter other human beings and the men who lead other men into battle. They are not weak men. They are not wimps. They are not sissies. And yet they're willing to weep and kiss each other and hug each other in their intimacy and care for one another. Then what we see also and finally that in this deep covenantal relationship there is sacrificial loyalty. It's saying, I am going nowhere, no matter what it costs me to stay in this relationship. Covenantal relationships, you're willing to lay down your life for other people. And finally, we saw that they're patterned after God's covenantal relationship with us. That we have a God who has done all these things. That we have a God who has become vulnerable. That we have a God who lays his life down for us. And he has a covenant with us so that we might be brought into relationship with God himself. So last week, we, what, I, what I said is we looked, we were looking more at the nature of covenantal relationships. And this week, I want to continue this look, but look at it more by applying our covenantal relationships and friendships. This week, I want to connect that connect. We, we described these covenantal relationships last week. This week, I want to connect and apply the idea of covenant relationships to our lives. And I want to do it in three points this morning. The first is this. 
First is you have a need for covenantal relationships. You need this kind of relationship in your life. Desperately so. Let me just show you from the text is where we'll begin. Here's the story, if you remember. You remember Saul is king, and they are being, the people of Israel are assailed by the Philistines, and no one will face Goliath. This is chapter 16. No one's going to face Goliath in 17. And David goes out and he slays the giant. And David is sure to be the future king. And Saul is envious of David's popularity. And so he begins to seek David's life. He chases after David for much of chapter 16 and 17, trying to pin him against the wall with a spear. And Saul is coming after David in multiple ways and in various, with various soldiers. He hatches plots of offering his daughters in marriage in the hope that by the offer of a, with a hefty bridal price, that if David would go and take out a hundred Philistines, that he could then marry one of his daughters. And Saul's hope was that in that, going about that, that David would be killed in action in the hopes that David would die trying to win his bride. Saul's rage flares up again. He pursues him to various cities, to Naoth and Ramah. And David lives, David lives though as a servant of Saul, but he lives in constant danger. Saul is powerful and he is angry. The odds are entirely with Saul. Everybody looks to serve Saul. Saul is the king. He is the man who can boss all the soldiers what to do. He can send many numerous assassins after David. David, David doesn't have a chance here. And in fact, David has only one shot to being saved. He has one person to whom he can go, and that is Jonathan. You know, the narrative actually in chapters 18, 19, and 20, which we looked at that whole section last week, the narrative, it is bracketed by this at the beginning in the end is Jonathan, in the middle is Saul, and the terror of being chased by Saul. But it is bracketed there by Jonathan's faithfulness. The very literary structure of this narrative, we are being told this, that friendship, covenantal relationships have the power to protect us from evil and in the midst of evil. That when everything else in life is going wrong, There is great power and provision in covenantal friendship and relationships. Now, here's the reality. David would not have made it without his friendship with Jonathan. Without Jonathan protecting him and covering his back and his front, David would have been killed eventually by Saul. Jonathan protects David. Now, most of us won't have six attempts on their lives like David does in these chapters. But everyone in this room will experience deep, pain, and suffering, sometimes more than we could ever describe or imagine. The kind of suffering that would make you despair for life. At some point in your life, we will all be heartbroken. We will all be despairing. You will need, and in those moments, it is in those moments that you'll need someone who will hold you up in the midst of the pain and the hardship. Every marriage is going to have times where you struggle. But what is going to hold that marriage up is not its sexual or romantic powers, but its friendship powers, its covenantal relationship that stands at the rock bottom of that marriage. In life, there's going to be sorrow and suffering, and you will not make it with joy. You will not make it with hope unless you have friendships. We need relationships because of this. You were made for relationships. The reason that this is so is because companionship and friendship and deep covenantal relationship is intrinsic to who we are. Did you know that there is a friendship and love within Godhead himself? 
right? We serve one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that is mind-blowing to us, and it is a mystery to which we cannot comprehend, but we do understand this, that within God himself, we know that he is relational. He didn't have to create us in order to be a relational God. He didn't create us in order to begin to love and to have covenant friendship and relationship. No, within God himself, there is covenant. There is deep commitment amongst the members of the Trinity, And in creation, we also see this reflected in creation. Because in Genesis 1, God's creating the whole world, right? He comes to the end of the days, and he says, it's all good. It's very good. Everything is wonderful. And in chapter 2, we get to a place. This is before the fall, before sin is entered. And what do we see has happened? He looks at Adam, and there's not a a partner. There's not someone who's fit for a right relationship with Adam. And so what does he do? He creates woman. And he enters, draws Adam and Eve into a covenantal marital relationship with one another. Paradise was not as it should be until there was relationships amongst people. God has made us for relationship. We are made in the image of God to do life within these kind of relationships. Not living parallel lives. You notice what he provides for Adam. A spouse. Somebody with whom he will enter into covenant relationship. And so what allows you to be sustained in the midst of a life of ministry? What sustains joy in the midst of a broken world? What sustains hope in the midst of darkness? It is traversing the deep waters and the dark days with a few close friends who are going nowhere. Who are going nowhere. You know, there is no amount of wealth or health or cruises that will give you rest. And they'll fill this need, the need that only a friend can fill. We need deep and covenantal friendships. The second thing I want you to see about covenantal relationships is this. We need them, but we don't do them very well. In fact, we do them really, really badly. We have a problem with covenantal relationships. We have a problem. It's seen in our marriage statistics the place where we violate covenant perhaps more than any other place. We see it in our violation, the way we do church, and the way that we hop from church to church, violating our covenantal uh, affirmations there. And we are a lonely people because of it. The illustrations are used at the very beginning of our time together where we, we lack real intimacy. Certainly it's because we are a more transient culture, that's for sure, right? We constantly, we, we move a lot, we're more busy, we're more spread out uh, in our lives than other societies before us. But there is a heart issue at play that is going at the depth of who we are that is causing havoc in our relationships. And I, what I'm about to share with you is actually taken out of a book called Relationships, a Mess Worth Making, in which the, the author, named Tim Lane, and uh, the other co-author, Paul Tripp, talk about the difficulty and the challenges of relationships in this world. And by the way, as a quick plug, uh, come this October, Tim Lane, the author of that book, is going to come to a conference for us here at King's Chapel in October on relationships and mess worth making. So I'm only going to give you a summary this morning as a means of whetting your, your appetite for hopefully something far more coherent coming in October. But what they talk about in that book is that they, we, we, haven't, we move to two relational extremes. We have tendencies to move in two different directions in our relationships. We move either towards isolation or to a relational immersion. Let's look at the first, relational isolation. The relationally isolated believe that relationships, deep relationships, they can have friendships, 
They can have companions of some sort or another, but they believe these deep covenantal relationships are simply too risky. They're too risky. Everyone has, been, has hit that wall at some time or another in your life where we have to ask our question, ourselves this question, or we've asked ourselves this question in our battle relationship with other people, is why do I bother? Is it really even worth it to have divest in this kind of relationship? We reach points in our relationships where we wonder if this is even of any worth at all to us. You know, a wife may decide one day that it's not worth opening up to her husband anymore because it, it, there's too much risk and there's too much pain associated with it. An employee goes to work and he begins to shut his door and only comes out when it's time to go home because there's too much stress involved and there's too much rancor going on in the the course of the relationships at work. A teenager comes home from school and goes to his room and he stays there with the music blaring until he's controlled to come out of his room to eat some dinner where he immediately sets off after dinner and goes right back to his room. You see, some of you probably even dropped out of small groups. Why? Because it was just too darn awkward and just too darn difficult to be that vulnerable. And there's all those needy people in which you walk out feeling guilty because you can't meet all of their needs. Neighbors live side by side for years, but no one knows anything significant about each other because we don't want to dare ask because it might ask something of us. When faced with the difficulty and challenges and sacrifice of having relationships, some of us have this tendency to opt out. Now, this doesn't mean that we, that we don't have some friendships. In fact, this person may have many friendships. This person may go to many parties and have many relationships. But at some point or another, this person puts up a wall and says, you shall go no further, and I will go no further towards you. And the reason why we run to, away from deep relationships is because I, what I would say is, I'm going to diagnose it this way, is for our longing and our love of being unencumbered unencumbered by other people. There's a passage in there in the scriptures about when you love one another, you're to bear one another's burdens. That requires you to be encumbered. The Habits of the Heart is a book that was written in the 1980s by a guy named Robert Bella. It's actually, if um, you're familiar with uh, sociological works about American society and culture, this is a watershed book. But he's writing about the American culture, and he's writing particularly in this book, and it's Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella is, about what it means to be an American. In other words, what would define an American individual? And he says this, in describing an American individual, what they most want is he says what the American person most wants is to be an unencumbered self. Now, that's a kind of a weighty sociological word, to be an unencumbered self. But what it means is this, is deep down we're all libertarians at hearts. Because the issue is not so much that we don't want government services, to put it in a political way, but we don't want to have to worry about you. And not only that, is we don't like you telling me what to do with my life. That we long, this means the unencumbered self longs for no institution, wants no restriction or relationship that will get in the way of me being me. And of me pursuing what I am all about. For example, I'll give you from my, my own, this longing in the American heart. I live in one of the most American neighborhoods I could ever think of in my life. The, the people in my neighborhood tend to be about upper 50s, early 60s. Many of them are early retirees that did really well. They have nice homes. They have properties that range from one to two acres. And they all have large trees in between the properties in which they love the wooded areas. There's no sidewalk. 
It's not a sidewalk community. Everything about this community, and they're fairly large homes, everything about this community says this. Stay off my lawn. I want my one and a half of manageable, beautiful acres where I can live in my pretty home, and I want you to stay away. In fact, the first week in which we moved into the neighborhood, I was having a conversation with the guy who lives directly next door to us. And he saw that we were moving our stuff in. I went, I went over to, he was outside trying to leave, and I ran over, like I'm that obnoxious new neighbor. And I run over, and I began to talk to him. And, and he, at some point in the conversation, he said, man, I just love this neighborhood. I was like, man, tell me about the neighborhood. He's like, he shares a little bit about it. And he said, you know what I love the most about the neighborhood is everyone just leaves everybody alone. <laughs> I said, point taken, and slowly backed away. See, there's something in our Americanness that loves to be isolated, to be left alone. Our great heroes are this way. They tend to be the cold, quiet, silent men who live isolated Western lives. But from a biblical point of view, nothing could be more threatening to the unencumbered self than a covenant. Than a covenant. Remember covenant relationships where you make a promise where you say you're inherently saying in a covenant relationship, I will bear you. I will bear your burdens, and I will go nowhere. In fact, I'm not encumbering myself for a week or a month or a year. I'm encumbering myself for the rest of my life. Covenants demand risk. They demand you to be connected. They demand that you be vulnerable. We demand that you take other people's burdens. They demand that you sacrifice for other people. And why do we run away from deep relationships in this country? Why do we isolate Because we fear the risk of those relationships. Those relationships may ask you to be vulnerable. That's risky. May ask you to make a commitment, and that is risky. May ask you to sacrifice, and that is risky. It risks the way of life that you really want to live. It risks the Saturdays and the way you want to live them. And this this is, at its heart, a selfishness. An independent selfishness that wants to do with our life what we want to do. And wants to say to everybody else around us, no, you cannot ask that of me. No, you cannot have the depth, that depth of conversation with me. No, you cannot know that part of who I am. No, I will not have that, make that sacrifice for you. It is all a means of not wanting to lose ourselves. You see, the isolated person runs away from relationship because they're afraid of what the relationship is going to take from who they are. That's the first. But the second is this. The second is the person who's relationally immersed. The, there's the unencumbered person, that's the first person, he's unencumbered, but this person, the person who's relationally immersed, is the one who longs to be enmeshed, enmeshed. The old psychological word back in the 90s was codependency, but we don't even know what that means anymore. So the relational isolationist cannot find deep friendships because he fears what the relationships will ask of him. But the relational immersionist ruins relationships by asking of a friendship more than any relationship on this earth can handle. Because they ask and they make their deep relationships everything to them. Isolationists conclude that relationships are too difficult. They are not necessary and the effort is just not worth it. In other words, the isolationist says, I don't really need relationships to be me. But on the other hand, the immersionists, they are convinced that relationships are everything. Without relationships, I'm nobody, the immersionist says. These people smother relationships because of their desperate neediness. And they ruin relationships in this way. 
And you may have experienced this. You may have been on the, on the end of the person who is running away from this type of person. You see, who are the people you most want to run from relationally? It's the people who are the most needy and demanding all the time. It's the person who most desperately wants attention. Have you ever run into that person who demands that you be friends with them? And they text you all the time, and they pursue, and they pursue, and they pursue, and they pursue, and you're putting off all the signals that say, you got to back off, bro. And they're just up invading your space. This is a person who's constantly saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I am so desperate for a relationship with you. I will break any social bounds in order to move into your life. And often these are people who will find that relationships flare up quickly and they go hot and heavy. They binge and they purge on relationships. And relationships, they throw themselves into relationships and then a few months later, you'll be hang- the person you, who used to hang out with them, you'll see them running from that person and you'll go, what happened? They're like, they're driving me crazy. That person is psycho. Why is that? Because these people... They may give a lot to the relationship, but they are ultimately demanding a relationship before there is commonality developed. Then they demand a vulnerability that comes without the security of covenant, and they demand sacrifice of other people without covenant itself. These are people who seek friendship for this friendship's sake. They seek friendship to fill them up. They don't wait for the commonality to take hold talked about that last week and C.S. Lewis in the same book Four Loves that I quoted from from a couple times last week says at one place that these pathetic people simply who simply want friends can never make any because the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends in other words people who long for relationships simply for relationship have forgotten the first step to building upon a relationship which is a common purpose and significance in life the immersionists may look on the outside like they, are, that they serve the relationship, like they will be dedicated to the relationship, but ultimately they are self-centered. You try to, if you disappoint this type of person, the fangs come out. They are demanding, and they give in order to get something from you. They manipulate to get what they want. You ever been around a manipulative person who says, I've done this for you, now you have to do this. It is always a tit-for-tat sort of relationship with this person. And in the end, what this person is doing, and this is the, the, to give it in the most graphic terms, what this person is seeking to do in relationships is consume the other person. Consume them. Instead of being in an actual relationship with that person, that, uh, the person they're trying to be in relationship with there is there merely to meet their needs, to make them feel a certain way. The Christian understanding of covenantal relationships and love is this, that I will enter into this relationship to serve this person, to give my life for this person. But the world's understanding and the way the immersionist does relationships is this, is I'm in this to eat you, to consume you, for you to give me my life. They will throw themselves at people and they will demand friendship. But in the end, the relational immersionist is there simply to consume, to take, and to fill themselves up with a sense of what they are lacking, lacking from their separation from God. So here's the question. Which of these tendencies do you most reflect? Are you a relational isolationist or are you a relational immersionist? We live in this tension sometimes between a self-protective isolation and the dream, the longing for meaningful relationships. Do you tend to move in the direction of isolation or towards immersion, towards independence or codependence? Well, the, answer, the question is this for us then, is if this is the problems, we, de- we can't run away from relationships because we so desperately need them. 
And yet when we get into them, we tend to ruin them. We tend to put walls up or we tend to abuse those relationships. And so how can we move towards relationships in a way in which I, 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 we can actually allow them to demand something of us? How do we move towards relationships and actually recognize their, their value, but then don't make them ultimate? Well, here's the third thing that we need in regards to covenantal relationships. We have a gospel for covenantal relationships, and that's what we need, the good news. You see, last week we talked about the God's pattern of covenantal relationships for us, but it's not simply a pattern that we are to, Im, to, um, to work our relationships to look like, but we're actually to find strength from our relationship and our covenant with God. I'm going to repeat some of the very same things I said last week to get into this, and then I'll apply it specifically to the isolationist and to the immersionist. A covenantal relationship with God is the relationship that you most need, and it's the thing that's going to give you the power to actually do relationships right. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, I said this last week, that when Jonathan is asking David for a covenant, how do you describe it? He says, I want you to show me the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, that's that pattern piece that we talked about last week. But the reality is this, is in Christ Jesus, you can know the steadfast love of the Lord. It is that Hebrew word hesed. It is referred to as covenant love. This is a love that pursues and is not scared off. It is a love that does not forget. It is a love that does not run away when things go badly. What we have in our God is a covenant-keeping God. And I mentioned this last week, that the story of the Bible is about covenant. It's about God's relationship with his people. And that he has brought himself into covenant with us. And he has said that in this covenant, there is blessings and there's cursings. If you do this, you get blessings. And if you do this, there's cursings. But the problem is this, is have we been faithful covenant partners? No, we've been terrible covenant partners. We've been awful covenantal spouses. And so we deserve all the curses. And so, but yet God, in his loving pursuit of us, had said about our relationship, there is no risk that I, am not wor- that, is not, that I am not willing to take in order to stay in covenant relationship with you. And so even though the result of the old covenant should be that I put cursings down upon you, what I will do in order to remain in relationship with you is I will send my son to die for you to take on the cursings that you deserved in this relationship. I should send you away from me. Away, be separated from me relationally forever and ever, but instead I'm going to draw you near through a new covenant where my son's going to take on the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of the old covenant and instead you're going to receive nothing but the blessings of a new covenant where in Christ Jesus you get everything he gets. And what does Jesus get? Where does Jesus go at the end of his life on earth? To the presence of God the Father where there is no more separation you see, the story of the Bible is that we have been unfaithful covenant partners. This covenant, I, I, we are isolationists from God, right? The relationally uncommon person has said to God, I don't want anyone to tell me how to live, and that includes you, God. I don't want covenant with you. And the relationally immersed person has says, I will take a relationship with God, but I'll take it on my terms, and I'll be manipulative towards God so that when he doesn't give me what I want, I spew my anger and hatred towards him. We have treated God as being there for us. We've been abusive covenantal partners, and yet God has been so faithful to us. And because of what Jesus did for us, by coming to die and taking that curse, by ushering us into relationship with God, what has he called us? We read it last week, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. We ought to get wrath. We ought to get the, the, the slaughter of servants. We ought to get the curses of the covenant, but God says, I will give you friendship instead. 
And our friendship with God is secured because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. That the gospel of Jesus, the story of the Bible, where God pursues us, he initiates with us, he binds himself to us, he becomes vulnerable, he takes risks for us. You know, one of the fears that we have as isolationists is someone will ask too much of us. And Jesus says, there is not, there's never too much you can ask of me. See, the gospel is for our friendships, and the gospel of our covenant relationship with God has, has, has implications for the unencumbered and the, and the immersionist person. Those of us who are abusing relationships and those who are running from relationships. First, for the, pers- the gospel for the person who's relationally immersed. For the person who views relationships as being their all in life. In the gospel, what you have is we have a friend who welcomes us and welcomes your neediness, but provides us what we really need, himself. You see, the way the immersionist tends to do relationships is I want the stuff you can give me, but I don't want you. But Jesus comes in the world and says, no, 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 no. What you really need is me, and I have given myself to you. Our friendship with Jesus provides the peace that us who are relationally needy need in the midst of the confusion. It relieves the desperate need we have that we look to others to provide us for peace, but we can find it in God. And for our friendship with Jesus Christ, you can actually be filled up with a friend who can bear the weight of who you are. And all of your neediness When you have a friend, you have Jesus as your friend, you can actually begin to have friendships because you're not so darn needy that you suck the life out of everybody else because where you get life is not in other people, but in God himself. That, you know what what happens when you begin to to live for the Lord? One, what, what what the sign of this is you'll begin to pray a lot more. And when you have a problem, you're not the person who calls nine people and just spews all of your problems upon everybody, who, anybody you can find, anybody you can grab, but instead you become a prayerful person who, lo- who lays before the Lord and cries out to him and lays your needs at his feet. But not only that, when you get Jesus, we know what you also get? You get a purpose in life, and suddenly you become highly attractive to other people because you have a commonality of purpose with other Christians to which you can bond together. You start to live for the forward and you have purpose that will lead to these connections that you so desperately long to have. And so my call to the relationally missed person this morning is this, as you must repent of seeking to find in human relationships what you can only find in God. Repent of, quit looking at your, at your spouse and making all of your demands. You see, some of you are, are you're, you're making so many demands of your spouse because you need them so badly. You need them to be a certain way so badly. And you're asking them to bear a burden that only God himself can bear. So you need to repent of that and instead feed upon Christ, right? Instead of consuming other people, Jesus has said, come, right? That's what we do at the table. Come feed upon me. Come take and eat. Come taste for I am good. Feed upon my goodness and my friendship and the fact that I will never forsake you and I will never leave you and I accept you and I can bear the weight of all of your problems. The gospel for the unencumbered first and for the isolationists. For you, you may wonder, why bother? And the answer to you is this, because God bothers with relationships. The unencumbered person doesn't want covenant relationships because he is afraid of what it might cost him. Therefore, what the unencumbered and the isolationist person must come to see is that Jesus has borne the full cost of our relationship with God. Jesus took the risk. Jesus paid the cost. And what that means for the unencumbered person is this, 
is that what we have is somebody who is absolutely selfless, someone who gave himself for us, who took the risk and bore the cost in relationship with us. Therefore, the gospel tells the isolationists that there is a relationship out there that is safe. That is safe. Because what we fear most as isolationists is you taking something from me. And what we have in Jesus is finally a relationship and we have a strength and we have a security, something that can never be taken from us. And therefore, it doesn't matter. If you're a relationship that I have to die, if I have to give up my Saturdays and my Sundays and I have to give up my evenings and I have to give up my life and I have to give up my money in order to care for you and to be faithful to this covenant partnership, I will do so because this relationship might take everything for me to be faithful in it. I know this. Ultimately, I am secure because God has provided me a relationship that's going nowhere. But I have something at the core of whom I am that is never at risk. For Jesus took all the risk for me. And not only that, but because of the secure relationship with God, that the earthly relational risks are worth taking. You know this? You see, some of you are isolated from other people because what you fear, and maybe you've even experienced it. Maybe you want, once you move towards people, but you got wounded too many times. Or maybe you, you, you invested in that relationship and that person moved away, Right? Five, six, seven, eight years of relationship, that person, and now they're a continent away, and you're going, what's the point? I'm going to settle in with my small, isolated little life. But understand this, all relationships now in Christ Jesus have eternal implications. Let me illustrate it this way. Jonathan, here in the very ending of this text, what do we see? Jonathan and David separate, and they communicate, reaffirm their covenant with one another, but they never see each other again. Never. And yet David and Jonathan are both faithful to the covenants. They're still, they still relationally invest, even, not, even if they're not next to each other, even if they're not gaining anything from it. Jonathan tells David, you have to go into hiding. You have to be a fugitive. But what does he say? The Lord shall be between me and you forever. What's that mean? He says that we have a connecting point that means that we will be connected to each other for all of eternity because we have a God who has secured our relationship with him, not just our relationship with God for all of eternity, but our relationship with one another for all of eternity. Here's what you realize, is that friends don't, friendships don't actually end. Yes, you may have a momentary investment and you may not benefit from them in large part for the rest of this life, but you have a relationship that is eternal. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says that I think describes it well. He said, free friendships have something Friendships have something in common, but what if it's the Lord? Friendships have to have something common, some passion, and what if it's the Lord? What can happen to those relationships? He says we should strive to lay God the foundation of all of our friendships and subordinate our love for each other to our love for God. For so as far as it is so, it will last forever. Death won't put an end to such a friendship, nor can it put an end to friends' enjoyment of each other. In Christ, your friendships will last forever. And this is an example that actually Jonathan Edwards at the end of his life, he is in Princeton, New Jersey, and he is dying of smallpox, and his wife is on the way to see him, but he knows that his wife, his life is at the very end, and he knows his wife is not going to get there in time. So he calls his daughter into the room, and here's what he said to his daughter. He leaves a message for his wife. He said this, give my wife, my kindest love to my dear wife, and tell her that the uncommon union which so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. So my call to you who long to be unencumbered is this. Take the risk of getting vulnerable and getting sacrificial in a key relationship. 
If you're married, you probably ought to start there. If you have no friends, then it needs to start there. The gospel gives us the security to face the fears of losing yourself in the midst of covenantal relationships. If you choose to risk, if you choose to lose your life, guess what? The gospel promises that you will find it. You see, the risk that we feel we're afraid that someone's going to take from us is such that we're going to lose my life, lose the trajectory, I'm going to lose myself in this person. But yet, that's not actually how you found your life. This is a word that David Brooks says to, said to graduates, and we're ending here with this. He said this, he's talking about this, about the spirit of the age, which is this, is that you're supposed to, before you can join yourself with other people is that you, and, and join a great cause, is you have to find yourself. But here's what he says. Follow your passion, chart your own course, march the beat of your own drum, follow your dreams and find yourself. But this talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood. Finding serious, finding serious things to tie yourself down to Most successful people don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and they find a problem which summons their life. If a relative suffers from Alzheimer's and a young woman feels called to help cure that disease, a young man works under a miserable boss and must develop management skills so his department can function. Most people don't form a self and then lead a life. They are called by a problem and the self is constructed gradually by their calling. When you read a biography of someone you admire, it's rarely the things that made them happy that compel your admiration. It's the thing they did to court unhappiness, the things they did that were arduous and miserable. And it's in that they found themselves. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, particularly when you lose your life for the sake of other people, perhaps you just might find it in Christ Jesus. And indeed you will, because the more you pour yourself out in relationship to other people and take that risk, guess what you're going to find? The very thing you feared has happened. I don't have enough. They sucked all the life out of me, and therefore, what do you have to do in that moment? You have to get on your knees, and you have to cry out to your covenantal God, and you have to say, God, I need you so desperately. And there, all of a sudden, now your horizontal relationships are making you realize how deeply you need the the vertical. With that in mind, let's pray. Graciously, Father, we thank you for relationships. They are a sweet thing and they are your gift. They are meant for our pleasure and for our good and for your, as a means of your provision. And yet, Lord, we confess that we, we have this pattern of ruining them. That we take your good things and we make them God's. Or because we're hurt by them in this broken world, we run from them. And so, therefore, we don't get to enjoy the good things that you provided. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would find a security in our friendship with you. As we sang in all those lines from the Jesus, the friend of sinners earlier, just all those descriptions of your compassion and your kindness, the fact that you're not going to leave us, you're going to be near us. Lord, I pray that we would reflect upon those things. Then, Lord, we wouldn't just simply be um, inspired by your friendship with us. But, Lord, that we would live into and lean upon your friendship. That we would depend upon you. And that from that, we would be then empowered to go and pour ourselves into other people. To give ourselves to them. And deep and abiding covenantal relationships that serve us and both and serve them. And ultimately serve your kingdom and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.